Welcome to the second Republican debate of the 2024 primary, live from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. Joe Biden should not be on the picket line. He should be on the southern border working to close our southern border because it is unsafe, wide open, and insecure. As president of the United States, I'll be standing with workers all across America, and I'll be standing for the right to work of every American to join a union or not join a union as they decide. If the government shuts down, should voters blame populist Republicans? Voters should blame everybody who's in Washington, D.C. Where's Joe Biden? He's completely missing in action from leadership. And you know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record. No one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. I have a radical idea for the Republican Party. We need to win elections. And part of how we win elections is reaching the next generation of young Americans where they are. So when I get into office, I've been very clear. Kids under the age of social, under the age of 16, should not be using addictive social media. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps that we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. Welcome to Politics is Everything, where every time you hear us, you feel a little bit smarter from what we say. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondek. So approximately 12.8 million people watched the first Republican presidential primary debate in August when the GOP candidates faced off in Milwaukee. We still don't quite have viewers of numbers in, but the second debate was on September 27th and held at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. There were seven Republican presidential candidates who participated, um, a slight quote-unquote winnowing. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson did not qualify for this debate, um, but South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former Vice President Mike Pence all participated. Uh, And Ron DeSantis, of course, the one-time top challenger to Donald Trump who's kind of fallen off. And it's actually, it's actually, it's, it's funny that that's the last name you mentioned just because as, as I sort of felt this watching it and, um, and I think other observers pointed this out too, that he's kind of running this front runner strategy when he's like hopelessly behind Donald Trump mean you know, because he's not really engaging with the other, the other candidates all that much. Well, polls don't win elections. Voters do. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, but, uh, you know, the polls do sometimes tell us something about those, what those voters might do. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know. I mean, the, the, you know, we, you, you bring up the first debate, like what changed over the past month since the first debate, which I think was August 23rd. And, you know, not a whole lot did. I mean, Trump, you know, Trump didn't clearly didn't pay any sort of penalty for not participating in the first debate. Um, some of the candidates tried to make, you know, make, make a note of his absence, which I think it's reasonable for them to do. You know, I guess Nikki Haley is probably in a, in a, in a little bit better position um, now than she was at, at the time of the first debate. But, you know, again, Trump is still so far ahead of, of these other candidates that, um, you know, again, not, not a whole lot has changed in, in a real substantive way. Exactly. Um, that's exactly where I wanted to start. Um, I was going to say, let's start with the elephant in the room. <laughs> right. Get it? Or the, ele- the elephant not in the room. <laughs> One of the elephants not in the room of elephants. Right. Chris Lasavita, uh, who's the Trump campaign senior advisor, uh, put out a statement that, quote, tonight's GOP debate was as boring and in- inconsequential as the first debate 
and nothing that was said will change the dynamics of the primary contest. Um, and, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb. Um, that's a little bit of sarcasm and say, you know, agree with you that this debate just really doesn't change the fundamentals of the nomination process. Um, you mentioned that first debate and, you know, looking, I looked at the polling averages for all of the Republican primary contenders and Donald Trump is actually doing better in the national averages than he was after the first debate. So um, he was at about 49% at that first debate um, in the, in a national average of polls. And now he's at about 54 and above um, in the national poll. So, you know, there's still no incentive for him to participate. Yeah. And, and Las Vito also said that, that, you know, he already said that Trump is not going to participate in the next debate, which I think is um, scheduled for the day after the November election now that just came out recently. And, you know, part of what I think these candidates should be trying to do and maybe trying to do is to draw Trump out at least to make it to, to, to hurt him enough to that he feels like he needs to participate in the debate because his non-participation is hurting him. And again, that did not seem to be the case after the first debate. And, you know, we'll see what the numbers tell us. I, I don't know if that's going to happen this time either. Um, you know, you mentioned the viewership for the first debate, which was like 13, 14 million um, that the first time, you know, I went back and looked at some of the 12, 12.8 million. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, so, um, I went back and looked at just some of the past primary cycles to see like what happens with the viewership for the second debate. And like, there's not like a huge sample size here or anything, but you know, I think it's probably likelier to go down as opposed to go up. Um, so my guess is that viewership is going to be lower, particularly because there were new, no, new, no new candidates on the stage. It also, it was on Fox business as opposed to Fox news, which, you know, Fox business, I mean, you know, probably if you've got Fox News, you got Fox Business too. But um, it's not as as big of a network or big as a, big of a cable network as, as Fox News is, even though they're related. Um, and uh, so, so you know, my guess, and again, we're speaking before we know the ratings, so maybe I'll be wrong about this. But my guess is the ratings will end up being lower, just because there's also, I think, a novelty factor of the first debate. You know, like if Trump had been there last night, yeah, you'd expect the ratings to be higher, but he wasn't. Um, so, so, you know, my, even, even the, the sort of potential number of people reached is, is probably going to be, you know, end up being lower than the first. Well, and, and that, you know, sort of further incentivizes him to stay away from the debate because then he's just drawing attention to other challengers in the field. <laughs> um, and, you know, we know from these nominating contests that the point of it is, is to really garner media attention, gather attention. And so, you know, him being in Michigan, um, and, and giving a speech, um, there uh, to auto workers and to members of the working class, you know, it, well, I mean, we can talk a little bit about that, talk about that a little bit more. Um, you know, that is a better use of his time from a strategic standpoint than you know to bring attention to than than to call attention to this debate. Yeah, and he's he's been doing kind of this counter programming um, for uh, you know for, for you know against the uh, against the debate. My guess is he'll probably do something similar in the next debate, assuming he doesn't change his mind and, and, and show up. Um, and yeah, the whole point, you know, as, as you said, is to sort of try to take as much oxygen from the other candidates as possible and sort of smother the, the debate to the extent that people are, are, uh, are, are paying attention to it. So he's also been um, uh, posting on his social media that the party should pay less attention uh, to the upcoming primaries and instead focus on the general election. And so that was sort of obvious in you know, Joe, President Joe Biden went um, to the um, United Auto Workers line this week, which was a historic first for a president. And then Trump followed on on the next day, you know, giving this speech um, at the non-union car plant. 
Um, and, you know, I think we're with with that dynamic, it's it's clearly, um, you know, setting up 2024 um, as a uh, contest specifically over the working working class voters, um, you know, who were significant to uh, both uh Donald Trump and Joe Biden in 2016 and 2020. Yeah, I mean you you know you you look at the election and it's like there's there's this sort of like trench warfare among the two parties going on among in a handful of states including Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and you know all states that where you have um a lot of you know white working class people who have you know generally trended away from Democrats in recent years but um Biden held the line enough with those with those folks uh to, to end up, you know, winning those three states. And, you know, you, I think you could probably, it, it, it seems likely that the winner of those, if, if someone sweeps those three states, they'll probably be president. Um, you could come up with scenarios, I guess, where maybe that doesn't happen, but, um, you know, those are the, those are really, you know, three of the, you know, maybe six or seven key battlegrounds with the others being like, you know, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, North Carolina. Um, but you're just going to see these, the, the candidates in these, in these places a, a whole lot. And I think it makes sense for them to um, to go there, and you know, we, we've got this this auto strike that is, of course, a huge deal in 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 those places. Um, and uh, you know, it's it, it's it's interesting that there was you know they they were, were both were both up there. Although to your point, um, you know, Biden was actually with the the union, and and Trump was with be, you know people who are non union workers. So um, it was kind of an just just interesting how that that played out. And I think as as some people have noted that that maybe didn't get they sort of said that the Biden and Trump things were sort of like the same and they really weren't. Um, although, you know, uh, um, one, one thing that has definitely been true about, um, you know, union, union work, unionized workers is that generally the leadership is more supportive of Democrats than the rank and file is collectively. Um, and so, and you even saw that in some of the reporting about, about, uh, Biden, Biden's visit. So, um, that's a, that's also, you know, worth considering. Um, I looked at the Google Trends data um, for the Republican Party um, and what America is searching um, in a the what what the what Americans are searching for uh, regarding the Republican Party in this last week. Forty two percent of all searches were about Donald Trump. Sixteen percent were about Vivek Ramaswamy. Thirteen percent were about Nikki Haley. Only nine percent about Ron DeSantis. Chris Christie at six percent. Tim Scott at six percent. Doug Burgum at three percent. Mike Pence at three percent. Um, uh, and then the others come in at one percent at lower. So even if we think about Google searches online, you know, clearly Donald Trump, even during the debate last night, um, is dominating. Uh, during the debate specifically, Donald Trump was still dominating searches um, on Google. Yeah, and, and you know, I. It's interesting how those numbers, they're not, they don't quite match the polls, but like they kind of look like the polls a little bit. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think we've, we've seen too that, you know, Ramaswamy was sort of a big focus of the last debate. I think he probably was, was in, in a way that this most recent debate too, although it's mostly just that everyone on stage seems to hate him so much and just kind of go back and forth with, with one another. Um, you know, I thought, I kind of thought Ramas, I, I viewed Ramaswamy as sort of a winner from the first debate just because I thought it would kind of get him out there a little bit more. You know, he, it doesn't, I don't think you could really say his support has really improved since then. He also took kind of a different tact in the debate, which maybe suggests that maybe he, he and his team felt like maybe he was a little overboard on the, on, on the first one. Um, but, uh, you know, Nikki Haley in particular was like really going after Ramaswamy. I, I give Haley credit because I, I think at least whatever you think of how she did, I think she at least sort of understands this idea that like 
in order for any of them to have even the remotest chance of, of beating Trump, they have to like get other people out of the race. They have to like try to disqualify the other candidates. And I thought that she was like actively trying to do that, at least whether it's effective or not. I don't know. But I, I again, I at least give her credit for that. For for our listeners who didn't uh, catch my sarcasm in our welcome note, um, that was actually a take on what Nikki, Nikki Haley said about Ramaswamy last night responding to him, um, where she said, um, quote, um, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber from what you say. You know, uh, last night, last night, it was funny that uh, Carlos Lazada, the uh, uh, book reviewer for, for the New York Times, the Washington Post, he pointed out that uh, Haley wrote this very, uh, very nice blurb for uh, Ramaswamy's most recent book. So, you know, she was very complimentary back then. But of course, that was before they were all presidential candidates and, uh, uh, you know, different story now. And I don't, I, you know, I think it's okay for her to her to change her mind on that she, again she's also trying to she's trying to you know create some space between her and the other candidates and trying to get some of these other people out of the race but again doesn't seem like anybody's even really dropping out i mean even ace hutchinson who didn't even make the debate you know he said he's going to try to try to stay in so it's like there needs to be all this winnowing that happens and again even if someone consolidated all of the support going to these other candidates They'd be a lot closer to Trump, but they wouldn't necessarily be surpassing him, at least not nationally, and at least not in most places. The point of of these debates are really to try to help consolidate the challengers, um, which which you've talked about. Um, it, it, it's also an opportunity for candidates to stay relevant. We we might address, you know, whether or not uh, any candidates are more relevant than others after this this second debate. Um, but it's also to attract don- uh, to attract donors, and you know. To your point earlier, Kyle, about Ramaswamy after the first debate, maybe gathering, you know, ga- gathering a little bit more attention. You know, he did see a spike in fundraising. He received about four hundred fifty thousand dollars in the first um, hours after that first GOP debate. Um, you know, but the point of these debates more broadly is also to try to convince um, uh, donors to to and attract them to um, uh, to one of the candidates' campaigns and. You know, I think one thing that's been telling um, is that a lot of donors, a lot of GOP donors still seem to be on the sidelines. One of the biggest donors to Republican politics is hedge fund billionaire Kim, uh, Ken Griffin, um, and, and he remains um, on, on the sidelines. And I'm also not sure that we've seen much impact from you know, the anti-Trump advertising that has really come from the Club for Growth, which has spent about $6 million so far, um, according to Ad Impact, um, uh, in, in this cycle to try to promote uh, uh, alternatives to Trump. Um, so I, I guess my question for you then is, is if, if, you know, the point of this debate is to consolidate challengers, to stay relevant, to attract donors, who would you vote off the island? Well, I mean, you know, Pence is, I think Pence is pretty clearly going nowhere um, as the sitting vice president. It was actually, I mean, it was, you know, he, you know, they, ra- they, they placed the candidates based on their poll, poll ranking. And, you know, Pence is the sitting vice, was the former vice president. Um, and, uh, you know, he is not, he's not even clo- that close to the center in terms of the ranking, which shows where he's at in, in the polls right now. And he just seems that the, where the party is, it's just kind of passed him by. Um, I mean, you, you know, who, who is still, um, you know, who could you imagine outside of Trump getting the nomination? I mean, I think you could still say that about DeSantis. I think maybe Haley. And then I don't know if I would even name anybody else. And again, it's not even to say that they're, they're likely to win the nomination. They're not. Um, 
But but at the same time, no one on that stage is like imposing enough to like push everyone out. Um, you know, so so it's just it, it's this uh, for the for the again, the non-Trump Republicans, it's this collective action problem. But again, even even if it was just a one on one thing versus Trump, it's not clear that any of these candidates could could beat him either. So, I mean, I guess what you, you know, if you're if you're a non-Trump Republican, you just have to hope that like the polling right now is just a mirage and that we get to like. December and January, and it turns out that Trump's support is not actually as strong as it looks. I mean, there was some forget who, who it was, but there was some polling um, recently that was asking like Republicans, like, "Are you only Trump? Are you considering other people? Are you not considering Trump?" And that poll actually presented like, "Hey, there's you know the Trump's sort of floor is maybe not as as uh, as high as it might look, um, and so maybe there's just something we're not seeing here that that you know that that, that he just." He just doesn't actually have it when it when it gets to the when it when it gets down to the actual voting. But again, I, I mean, to 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 believe that you have to believe that like this guy Trump, who's been so dominant within the GOP for the last you know close to a decade now, um, has artificial support within his own party, which isn't this doesn't actually seem realistic. It doesn't pass the smell test. But again, that's what these candidates have to be hoping for. To your point, um, I've also seen in a recent survey, you know that. Trump's numbers among primary supporters don't look quite as high as the national polling averages when the questions are framed a different way, um, or if respondents are given the choice of, you know, are you considering other candidates? You know, that percentage is a lot higher than the combined support for all of the other candidates besides Trump. So it looks a little bit more um, on par, you know, that that a second candidate would be a possibility. Um, but again, it seems like some consolidation has to happen in order to really get there. Could also be almost like kind of like this social desirability bias in the sense that like people maybe will over, they might in this instance be overstating their willingness to consider another candidate. It's like when people are asked about, hey, would you consider voting for a third party candidate? It's like, oh, well, maybe I would consider it. Maybe I would give it five seconds of thought but I'm not actually going to do it. And so that's the, that's the flip side of this that like, oh, well, maybe, maybe people are, are, are indicating more open-mindedness to a Republic, other, other Republicans than maybe they actually would, would demonstrate with voting. Um, and so that, again, that's sort of the flip side of it. There was a broad range of issues discussed during this, uh, second, uh, Republican presidential debate. And, you know, it, it really ran the gamut from foreign policy and national security to civil rights issues. Um, immigration was a big topic, healthcare, education. I mean, everything was covered. You know, all of the candidates only overall, if you look at airtime, you know, only received, you know, from a few minutes at the, at the one end of the spectrum to like maybe 13 and a half minutes. Um, for for someone who who was able to speak the most, um, and you know, I think one of the things that that really strikes me is if we look at coverage of the debate, it's characterized as chaotic, um, feisty, um, you know, and there's there's lots of mentions of issues, but I don't know that there were any take substantive takeaways about where the candidates stand on any of those issues that were covered with the exception maybe of like Nikki Haley on foreign policy and national security. Yeah, I mean look th there are there are differences although, you know, I, I think also the, a lot a lot of times these debates when you know, it's the opposition party trying to nominate someone to, to go up against the, the sitting president, it ends up being a lot of just repetition of like pretty standard 
kind of like talking points from one side to the other. I mean, I would say the same thing about like the Democrats in 2020. And so it's just becomes like, oh, well, we should be fighting each other. We should be, you know, fighting against Biden or, or Trump in the case of 2020 or what, or what have you. But in, it, I think by doing that, you maybe you make yourself a little less distinct. Um, and what I think the candidates maybe should be doing is trying to, well, first of all, sort of like dominate the stage and like get the most speaking time and come out of it making making news, um, but also to sort of like come up with things that are unique and appealing. And you know, it just it, it is it is sort of difficult when, to your point, the time is all splintered, and a lot of you know it, inherently, I mean, they're all members of the same party, so they all they are all are all going to end up sounding similar on a lot of different things, and particularly pitching themselves in opposition to. The other party, which isn't represented on the stage at all. You know, I, I also wonder, like, should we be reframing how these debates are even structured? Um, you know, when there's only two hours and so many candidates, um, you know, I think th- there's an opportunity to ask different kinds of questions. Um, friend of the Center for Politics, John Dickerson at CBS, you know, really makes the case um, uh, that I think we should be paying more attention to about asking candidates questions about the skills they'll actually need when they get to the presidency, that might be helpful. But, you know, maybe also honing in and diving deeper onto question on to into issues that really matter to um, Republican primary voters um, rather than spending time on issues that are of less importance. Yeah. And, you know, you also have to ask yourself, I mean, the, the, the sort of the 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 bar for entry gets higher and higher as you go further into the debate season. Um, and while this is better than having like, you know, 20 candidates over two nights when it's really just difficult to, to, you know, take everything in, um, you know, my guess is you'll probably see a, a, a slightly smaller stage and that's probably helpful because again, there are even on a stage with seven people, there are still, you know, more candidates than not who don't seem to have like any feasible path at all. Again, it's easy for me to say that, you know, the candidates themselves have to have some belief, but, um, you know, it, just, it, it, it would it would probably be, uh, uh, you know, m- more interesting and more substantive and just fewer people. Kara, you do have a you did have a piece in the crystal ball today uh, with your intern uh, uh, about uh, um, women presidential candidates. Uh, obviously, there's one on the Republican side, but just how the. Um, the, uh, 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 you know, it's just, it has been, obviously we've not had a woman president and you go through some of the, uh, challenges that, uh, that women candidates still face. I just wonder if you wanted to say anything about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, this, this came about because a reporter asked us, you know, why haven't we seen a woman? And so it was really an opportunity to, um, you know, to, to think about what are the barriers that women face. Um, and I think one of my, the key takeaways for me um, is, you know, we've had there have been women running for office for 100 over 150 years now um, and, and just haven't been able to really break through primarily in the two party system. Um, and if we look at, you know, even interest in running for office, um, there's a, you know, we used Federal Election Commission data just to do sort of a, a count of, of women candidates. Um, and, and I think one of the things that's really striking to me is that there is actually increased interest in women to run, especially after um, Obama was elected to the presidency. And then again, um, after Trump was elected, but we really don't yet have the 
party infrastructure and support for either Republican or Democratic women, um, you know, to to really attract donors, um, to get the attention that they need and the support they need to run. Um, you know, I think the other thing for me is just and, and there have been a number of, of research studies on this, um, a number of commentaries, but, you know, just how women are covered in the media remains uh, a huge challenge. And, you know, it's both gendered and racialized media coverage, um, you know, that, that really hamper women and also in turn impact uh, attitudes that the public has about uh, women. Another interesting finding for me um, is just the way in which um, women are have become even more pessimistic about their chances to achieve that office, especially after the 2016 election. Men tend to think that many Americans are ready to elect a woman for higher office relative to women um, uh, in, in, in surveys, but we've actually seen that gap grow since 2016. So you know, I think there's there's a lot of work to be done in terms of attitudes about women candidates, what we expect from women candidates. But we also have to think about the structure of campaigns and elections and whether or not they're even conducive and support um, women to be candidates. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a great point about how, like, the difference in opinion between like men and women on what you just mentioned was like you could you could certainly point to a lot of progress over the course of the last several decades and just in terms of numbers in terms of like women in congress and and also you know racial minorities in congress but if you actually you know if if women actually you know who have to deal with it have to deal with these things still perceive the the barriers that you know that men might think oh well we've made so much progress, so therefore the barriers aren't there anymore. And the barriers are still there. The barriers are still there. Yeah. Some of the, and, and the, the, the article does a good job of, of going through some of those things in terms of like coverage and the support from parties and that sort of thing. So it's like progress made, but still more progress to go. There's always opportunities to do better. <laughs> right, right. Um, but anyway, that's on the, that's a crystal ball today on, on Thursday. Um, and Karen, uh, I don't know if there's anything else, but otherwise, thanks for joining us. <laughs> thanks, Kyle. It's always great to talk with you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number Four Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.